this morning. Those of you who are clicking in online, we appreciate you sharing a few moments with us. And if you live in the area, we look forward to the time you cannot be here with us in person. There is a lot of value in getting together with God's people. And again, just uh, in worship, reminding ourselves of how great our God is. We're in John, the third chapter, the 22nd verse this morning. We'll go through the end of the chapter there. It says, and after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. And now John was baptizing at Anan near Salem. I know I messed those names up, but you put two vowels together and you'd mess me up all the time to start a word that way. Um, but I just want you to know that I know I'm an idiot when it comes to pronunciation, okay? So we'll, we'll go with that. Because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. And this was before John was put into prison. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. I want you to note here that there is um, some sort of an argument going on about ceremonial washing. Now, I try to imagine what that probably would be. We don't know exactly what the argument was about. But I know that um, John was baptizing Jews, and Jews uh, were not baptized. They were, uh, if you were a convert to Judaism, to Judaism, then you were baptized. But if you were born a Jew, that wasn't a part of your pilgrimage. Your pilgrimage was the ceremonial washings, and that was enough for you to be clean. And so I can see them arguing about why is it that John is saying you got to baptize these people aren't ceremonial washings enough and so I could see that argument unveiling and when I read this that's that was just a logical conclusion that my brain quickly jumped to you know um, studied enough commentaries to to know that that's kind of the summation or the guess of what people would say but then it quickly turns to something else Rabbi, you know that man <laughs> that was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about? Well, he's baptizing, which actually we read on down, and no, he wasn't. Jesus didn't baptize people. It was his disciples, and everyone was going to him. Um, Jesus is baptizing more than you, and everybody's going to him. Now, let that sink in a minute. That's not an argument, is it? That's a conjecture that they're making. Telling John, why would they be telling John this? Jesus is baptizing more than you and everybody's going to him. I think the devil's pretty good at setting these kind of traps, don't you? Is division a big deal? Does this look like a ploy to bring a little division between John the Baptist and Jesus? Would that have been damaging for the kingdom? 
if John, who had borne witness to the Christ, having baptized him, saw and heard the testimony that this is the Messiah, if all of a sudden he got at odds with Jesus and changed his story, would that have been a problem? Was it just an argument? Was it just a conjecture? No, I think it was a trap. I think the devil is pretty good at this. Jealousy, envy, fame, all of those things. He's got it, you're losing it. The number of followers he's gaining, you're losing. It reminded me of a Facebook story. And we thought, and we thought the number of followers was a new thing. It really bothered the Pharisees that he went out and he was having these crowds around. They were given to this jealousy and this envy and this fame and so forth. But John had proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah and he fully supported Jesus' ministry. Now Jesus is stealing his clientele. Or so was the implication. Was Jesus doing anything wrong here? No, this was, of course, the real plan. But the old devil just has a way of stirring things up. He's really good at that. He's got a way of making, making mountains out of molehills. Have you noticed that? What if there is a real offense? Somebody really did do something wrong. Let me tell you what I've observed. Satan has a heyday with that. I mean, he, if he can make it up, he'll go with a story that's not a story. John and Jesus are on the same side. They're working for the things of the kingdom of God. John was pretty sure about who he was and where, where his position in all this was. You're going to see here in a minute. And so there was no division that happened there. <laughs> But an offense that was really real. They really hurt me. They did this. They, whatever. Now what? Can the devil have a heyday with that? Oh man, he can go to, he can go to town with that. He gives folks lots of reasons to not forgive. He locks people down in bitterness. They're sitting around waiting on an apology that never comes. They're looking for reparations that are not going to happen. You know what? Sometimes there's just no way to fix something. Sometimes the thing that has been done is of a nature that it just can't be fixed, that there are no apologies. I, I, I taught my kids this growing up, you know. They do something stupid and hurt somebody, and they'd say, well, I'm sorry. Sorry doesn't fix it. I'm still taking your sister to the hospital because you were stupid. Okay? You can say I'm sorry, but it doesn't fix it. And I should charge you the money for it, you know? Sometimes sorry doesn't fix it. Boy, there's a lot of things in life that sorry just can't fix. You got any of those? Can't fix it. <sighs> Satan loves to jump on those. He loves to jump on those. Those are great places to cause division. And when that happens, a lot of times, and there is not a justice system that one can rely on, Mark or Romans 13 tells us 
you know, that's appropriate for us to walk through the justice system. But when that happens, we often jump into a place of plotting our own revenge, don't we? We're going to take matters in our own hands. And of course, we know from Romans 12, 19 and Hebrews 10, 30, that that's a bad call because vengeance belongs to the Lord. And even if we feel it, we need to let it go, don't we? This is the makings for a field day for the old devil. That's what's going on here. <coughs> and Satan is a master at expanding division way beyond the parties involved, too. People are real quick to jump on somebody's side in an argument and pick up somebody else's offense. Have you noticed that? Without even listening to the other person's side which doesn't really matter. It's still wrong to pick up somebody else's offense. Oh, let me be mad for you. Then if you two work it out, I'll still be mad at you. Why? Because I was never the one offended to begin with, right? I learned early on in, uh, in high school, I attended a Bill Gothard conference. At least I think that's when it was. I don't know. But whenever I attended it, he had a whole lesson on picking up somebody else's offense and how stupid that is. And I decided right then I wasn't going to do it. And you know, it's been amazing at how valuable that is in being a reconciler. Because if you take somebody's offense up, you're completely moving yourself out of a position to be able to bring the two parties together. Think about it for a minute. You can't because you've taken one side or the other, then you're going to exact retribution or you're going to demand apologies or you're going to, you get what I'm saying. And as a pastor, that was an important truth for me to learn. Let's go to Scripture for just a minute, okay? Luke eleven seventeen. Kind of a commentary on this passage and idea that we're talking about. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. Now, you've heard that verse a million times. You could all quote it. It's in the context of Jesus being... He's casting out demons, and they're saying, well, he does it by the spirit of the devil himself. And he's saying, no, that is not true. A kingdom divided against itself won't stand. And he said, if I'm doing it by the demonic, then what are your sons doing it by? A kingdom divided against itself won't stand. A house divided against itself will not stand. As a general rule, division is not a good thing. As a general rule, division is not a good thing. Unless, of course, you're after something other than peace and stability and love and fellowship and joy and prosperity. If you're after something else, then by all means, stir up division. It's Thanksgiving. Coming around the corner, right? When your family gets together, it's all going to be... Peace and love and joy, no discord, no fighting. Everything's going to be wonderful and harmonious, right? There's going to be unity. Hmm? What kind of a Thanksgiving are you looking forward to? Is unity important to you at Thanksgiving? It seems to me that it 
that we ought to be able to get together at Thanksgiving with some matter of unity, if nothing else, just around the idea of gratitude, which we're all celebrating together. Surely we all have something that we can be grateful for, that we could bring to the table and be grateful to God for, but I guess that even falls apart in some households because you have people who can't be grateful to God because they don't like Him. And they've chosen to go another way. But certainly there could be even just a, a, an attitude of gratitude about something that you have, even if it's not to God. And in that gratitude, maybe you could find a little bit of unity. You would think that we could put it all aside for one minute and just be thankful for what we have and eat a turkey together, right? I think a lot of times we're the instigators of the division because we don't value unity. And unity is like anything else. If you want it, you're going to have to work at it. It just doesn't happen. Man, we can, we can say words that divide in two seconds. We can also say words that unite, can't we? So am I saying that you just go along to get along? Well, sometimes you can do that, but no, not always. What fellowship does darkness have with light? And that's true. There is just going to be that difference. If you look in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, 18, Paul adds an interesting thought to this conversation. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Now, you, you got to laugh at this. This is in the context of the Lord's Supper. This is an ordinance that should have been bringing them together in unity in a big way around worship and the Lord's table. And they're divided. And he said, I don't have any words of praise for you in this. This is a mess. You can't even sit down with the, at the Lord's table in worship with the Lord's people and get along in unity. He said, no doubt, though, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, that's an interesting statement. There have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Go along to get along to a point, to a point. But you don't have to go in with both barrels loaded either, okay? Augustine said this, he, it was his golden rule for these kinds of relationships. He says, in doubtful questions, liberty. There are more than one view on things sometimes, and yours is not always the only or necessarily the correct. And where things are questionable, liberty. And then he says, in essentials, unity. You don't give up your essentials. Ah, and there's where the problem's going to come in, the darkness and the light. You don't give up your essentials. And those who share the essentials need to share them in unity. And in all things, he said, love, charity. That's a pretty good philosophy, isn't it? In doubtful questions, liberty. In essentials, unity. In all things, charity. It might be a useful word for us for Thanksgiving, huh? In some of our situations. So, so what is it? As, as I look at this, no doubt there have to be differences. What were the differences <clears throat> that Paul would have wanted highlighted 
to show that they had God's approval. <clears throat> well, it looks to me as I as I look at Scripture. If you look at that First uh, Corinthians eleven verse, going back to it there, there are a couple of things that Paul seems to, to double down on that I think were important to him that he was not going to give ground on. And they had to do with doctrine and they have to do with holiness. Those seem to be two big issues in the early church. And you understand this from the standpoint of the Judaizers were bringing in all of the old law and trying to mar the concept of salvation by faith through grace. That's what salvation was with Jesus. It's believing in him. It's putting your faith and trust in him. It's not about doing all of the old law things. And yet there was a call in the midst of this to holiness, not a Jewish holiness of keeping the law. He threw that away. I'm talking about the law that, that had all of the things like you can't pick up your mat that day and you can't cook beans and you can't do walk so many steps, all that Jewish stuff. He, he just pushed that away. It's salvation by grace through faith, even to the point of saying, no, even the circumcision, that thing that was a part of the old covenant. No, 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 no. This is new covenant in Christ Jesus. And it looked at, at this at that point like he was throwing away morality. And yet you had these people coming into the church who were Gentiles not Jews, who were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And the things that they were coming from, a lot of those religions were full of immoral behavior, right down to temple prostitutes and things like that. So he was saying, you can't do that. You can't bring that immoral behavior in while we're rejecting this other. And he said, you got to keep your doctrine right. It's got to be salvation by grace through faith. And we have to let Jesus be who Jesus is. And so those two things were very important to him, doctrine and holiness. He gives a charge to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.11. And here you get a feel for this. He says, command and teach these things to Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Set an example, that's life, that's holiness, for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. That's holiness. I would, I would say when you're looking for a new pastor in a few months that you look for some of that and try to improve a little from the one you had, all right? That should be an easy step up, all right? But you want to look at some of that, all right? Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. This is doctrine. Do not neglect the gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. We don't know what that is. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. I love that too. Watch your life. That's lifestyle. That's holiness. The way you live your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. These things were being assaulted. And he was saying to Timothy, Timothy, persevere in those, persevere in those, persevere in those. And I think there's a word there for us. And no doubt there's going to be differences at this point. And those differences are necessary so that the Judaizers can be removed. So that the false doctrines about holiness can be moved. And so that we can walk in a way in unity after the, the ways of the Lord. 
And I'm really impressed with, with uh, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I'm impressed with John's response here as this argument unfolds. He, and I'm not the only one. Listen to what one of the commentaries I read this week says. The reply here, he says, to this charge, you know, that hey, he's getting more than you. Boy, we got a problem going on here. You're losing out. He says, this is one of the noblest and most affecting utterances that ever came from the lips of man. That's a very, very high word way of saying what a redneck would say was, you know, I'm really impressed with what John said here. This is good stuff. I mean, what he understood and where he was at is absolutely amazing. And the lessons that we can learn from his response are overwhelming. Let's look at it. He says, <clears throat> to this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from God. Wow. Too many people want something that's not theirs. A man can receive nothing except what he is given from heaven. He was okay, wasn't he, with just what God had given him. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The, father, uh, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy, he said, is mine. And it's now complete. He must become greater. He must increase. I must become less. I must decrease. Pretty amazing words. A man can receive only what he is given from above. That's it. Only what he is given from heaven. Can we be content with only what we receive from above? James 1.16 says, Don't be deceived, brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from God, from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of all He created. I worked with a guy one time that uh, there were folks that were you know, obviously there's competition in the world and he was losing some businesses, one outfit. And I said, man, what are you going to do? Does that bother you? And he said, I have the business God wants me to have. He said, he'll give me all I need. Wow. Well, how does that stand in the face of American entrepreneurship, Right. Thanksgiving this week, what good gifts has God given you from above? Wow, that's a lot. How about, uh, what have we, le have we learned contentment yet? Have you got that one? Uh, contentment's a pretty important part of gratitude. Would you not say that? Paul says it this way, he said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. 
Now, we talk about that. I can do everything to him who strengthens me in a lot of different frameworks other than contentment and just getting by when he says get by. How does it work out generally when we're not content? If you live, if you live long enough, you're probably going to figure out that having more of the world's stuff isn't going to make you happier. I've got something I'm thinking about purchasing now, and I was discussing it with Lori this morning. And the the discussion came down to, well, is it really a need? And uh, no, it's not a need. And well, is it going to make me happier? Oh, no. There's nothing I can buy that's going to make me happier. I've got other things that do the same thing, and in some situations do it better. Contentment. So if it happens or doesn't happen, I really don't care. But we we have a tendency sometimes to want more and more and more of whatever it is that we want more and more and more of, right? People who collect little, what are they, porcelain, little porcelain things that they set on their shelves. When Dick and Sally died, I never saw so much knick-knack porcelain stuff in all of my life. We could have filled three houses with it and nobody wanted it. Valuable porcelain. When's enough enough? With me, it's for a long time, it was beehives. When's enough enough? One more. Always wanting one more. But now I'm old. You know what? I want one less. Isn't that funny how that happens? Age helps you understand that with all of this stuff comes maintenance and upkeep. And at my age, I want downkeep, less upkeep. I don't want all of that anymore. Okay, I want you to get this. Be careful that your wants don't drive your gratitude into whining and complaining. Now think about that. Be careful that your wants do not drive your gratitude into whining and complaining. Can that happen? The children of Israel wanted what? Meat to eat. They weren't getting good stuff in like they were back there when they were killing their kids in Egypt. Come on, people. And so they started whining and complaining and grumbling. And the testimony of Scripture is that God always responds to that in a very favorable way. Whining and grumbling and complaining. He loves that. It gets his attention and he responds immediately, just the way we want. Wow. You see, you see a problem there? So be careful with your wants. Because they can lead you to grumbling, which can lead you to a place that you don't want to be. Okay. So, this Thanksgiving season, what do you have to be grateful for? One of the things that I've said is when we, when we come to worship, one of the things that we do is magnify and exalt God. And the more we see Him, like we did this morning in song. I mean, the songs that we sang were great talking about the attributes of our God. And we just need to be reminded of that. Sometimes you just need to get up and say, how great is our God? And then all of a sudden, everything that you thought was important that day is really not. He's still on the throne. 
Sun still rises in the east and sets in the west. The rivers are all still going to the sea. None of them running uphill yet. <clears throat> He's on his throne. And he guides the heart of the king and he sets up governments just like he does the water course. It's important to remind ourselves of those things. It makes a difference in the way we live. And you're probably not getting a reminder of those things when you turn on your TV. Or you turn on the radio. Or you just discuss around the table at the house. A lot of times it is this place and this moment that brings us to revelation that we need to be stirred up on continually to be able to be able to overcome in a world that's pushing hard against us. So gratitude, it's a great way of looking at the attributes of God that are so significant to us. Are you grateful for health? And we can acknowledge him as the giver, sustainer of life and the healer of our physical bodies. He keeps them going. Are you thankful for a warm place to meet, a warm house to live in? And we can acknowledge him as the God who provides, not only for our physical needs, but our spiritual as well. Are you thankful for freedom and peace? Then you can acknowledge him as the Lord who sets up kingdoms among men and has made this happen for you. Are you thankful for meaningful relationships? Then I think you're probably going to have to start with the church of God and be thankful for the body of Christ that he has put together and the meaningful relationships that he gives you here. Are you thankful for your spouse, for your marriage? Then you, then you see him as a God who designs, who knew and saw in the beginning that it was not good that man be alone and that if you find a wife, you found a good thing. And he put man and woman together in the garden in a relationship of marriage. And so we can thank him for his infinite wisdom. That he saw the need of man and he pulled a rib out of Adam and he did something with it to create an amazing relationship. Thankful for peace in your heart and soul, then you can acknowledge that it is his love and his great grace that has redeemed us. And set us at peace with our heavenly father. Without it, you could never, ever come into the presence of God. Are you thankful for spiritual blessings of forgiveness and righteousness in heaven that awaits? Then we can acknowledge him as our savior, as our righteousness, and as our eternal hope. Now granted, if you're not living and, and your family is not a uh, believing family, you're going to be stretched. You're going to be stretched this season to walk into that with some of them. But we as Christians have that to be thankful for. In John 3, 28, he says, you yourself can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. And then he talks about this bridegroom and the bride. And we see this, the Lord's coming back for his church. And in this, as, as, as this is taking place and people are coming to the Lord Jesus, he says, I have joy in what the Savior is doing and what the Messiah is about in bringing people to God. And he's got to become greater and I have to become less. There is a word there for all of us. As God completes his work on earth through the lives of others, it should cause us to be full of joy. We're not competing in this thing. We each have our place. Some water, some, some plant, some are there for the harvest, but we each have our place. We can only have what we receive from God. That's it.
There's no place for jealousy here. We need to be content in what God has given us and be willing to become less as God raises up His Son, in John's case. In John, he had a pretty good, pretty good idea of who this Jesus was. And so it was easy for him, I think, to take this secondary role. Sometimes we get our eyes off of the Savior and we put it on each other. And in that we can get very competitive, very envious. We can fall into the trap that the Pharisees fell into of wanting to stop it because the movement was counterproductive to their agenda. If your agenda is the kingdom of God, if your agenda is to exalt the Messiah, you're going to find a place of unity with a lot of people there, and you're not going to find any contention. Now look at this. This is amazing. The one who comes from above is above all. Get what John's saying about Jesus. Whatever revelation you had, did it come from angels? Did it come from the Spirit? Wherever you got it, as it says in Hebrews, this is the ultimate revelation of God. This is it. The one who comes from above, he is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. You want to know what God's about? Go to Jesus. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. And no one accepts his testimony. The very contention that's going on here. John, they're going to Jesus and not you. And John is saying, I wish they were. But the fact of the matter is, they're not. Narrow is the way, and few that be that find it. And you people are happier with me because I said I am not the Christ than you are with him because he said he was. No one accepts the testimony, but the man who accepts it has certified that God is truthful. This is the one. This is the light. This is the revelation. He's the one we need to hear. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything into his hands. This is amazing theology. Look at it in the time frame. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There has been no death, burial, and resurrection. And look what John is able to grasp. It's all in his hands. See, this guy, there was none greater among men, it says. If you're talking about understanding, he's on top of it, isn't he? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And look at this, for God's wrath remains upon him. Wow. That's the gospel, isn't it? You believe in the Son, you have eternal life. You reject the Son, you will not see life. It's interesting, he has eternal life. It's not something he has in the future. To me, it is you believe in the Son, life begins. You have eternal life right now. You reject the Son, you will not see life now. You will not see life later. But in fact, God's wrath remains upon you. 
We don't talk much about that, do we? We talked about that. We want to water it down. You know, it's the way it's going to be in eternity. You're either going to be with God or without God. And what you're doing really essentially with what you do with Jesus is deciding who you're going to spend eternity with. You're going to spend it with God or you're going to spend it away from God, right? Listen, there's a wrath of God that the Jews were well aware of. They had experienced it. And they saw what happened to the Egyptian army. They'd seen the ground break open. They'd seen the fire fall from heaven. They knew something about God's wrath. And he created a hell for the devil and his angels. And he said, I will put you there for an eternity where there'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because you rejected my son. The way of life, the way of truth, and the way of grace, you rejected it. Well, that's not fair. No, it is fair. He's given you an out because you have put yourself in a position opposite to God by your sinful nature, by your sins and what you do. You have chosen to spit in his face. You've broken the relationship you have with God. There is no unity. And if you want unity... It comes through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. You reject that, you've rejected the only option you have to have right relationship restored to God the Father. And John knew that ahead of the crucifixion. This guy's on it. Where do you stand? With the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately determines where you stand with God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. We look forward to a united Thanksgiving celebration around gratitude. Looking to you with great joy for all that you've done in our lives all you have provided, and all that you are. Boy, Lord, if we can't get happy about that around Thanksgiving turkey, then we're a family to be pitied above all. So help us, Lord, to value unity, to walk in it, and to give liberty, Lord, in things that are not essential where it is essential to find unity and in all things to give love and charity. Amen.